Hi everyone, uh, this is Behzad Hashimov and this is Hashimov's Economics. Uh, we have a special guest. Uh, our guest is uh, Sandeep uh, Mahajan. Uh, he's a, a, pra a practice manager at, at the World Bank. Uh, welcome, uh, Mr. Mahajan. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll introduce you to our uh, audience. Uh, so you are a practice manager at the World Bank's uh, macroeconomic trade investment practice, responsible for uh, Europe and, and Central Asia. Um, and you had a quite a vast experience in, in many parts of the world, including uh, Asia, uh, as in Vietnam, and also Africa and in, in South Africa. And uh, today you came to uh, Uzbekistan to attend the economic forum. And, and I will ask you questions about, you know, uh, our, our country, uh, your experiences in other places, and how we should think about economic development. So if you, uh, if you will, I'll start. So the first question is, um, I read your blog post about uh, macroeconomic stability and exceptionally a high uh, returns on investment, and why they're not a sufficient condition for uh, private investors, why having both macroeconomic stability and uh, a pretty good uh, and returns uh, doesn't guarantee uh, investment interest. Can you elaborate that a little bit? Yeah. So, Bagsot, first of all, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I've heard a lot about you and about the platform that you're running here, and you're doing a great service uh, to, to the, the people here who are interested in the topic of development. So, um, the, the blog post you were mentioning was written in reference to South Africa. and. Uh, the, you know, what we found was that the economic returns to private investment, this is not portfolio investment, this is real investment, FDI. So the economic returns to investment have been increasing very sharply since the end of apartheid. Mm -hmm. And uh, the government had done a great job of uh, maintaining uh, macroeconomic stability, and, and yet the private sector response was, uh, was very weak. So it was a conundrum that you would expect that private investors can make more money now in South Africa, and yet they're not coming in. Um, so, you know, where it came down to really is that, you know, investment looks at two things. It looks at re uh, returns, and it looks at risks. And in South Africa, while the returns had gone up, the risks had gone up even more. So that offset um, the the returns that the investors could expect to make in the country, and which uh, you know, uh, basically explained why private investment was not in responding to, to that opportunity. Can we take your model about uh, risks and returns, which I, which I think is quite consensual. Uh, I think many people would agree that uh, if the returns are high, but risks are commensurately high, right. then I mean, there is not, no point of saying that returns are high. And one thing I think about, quite a bit about Uzbekistan is uh, how high the returns are here. Like if you, if you go to a commercial bank and you deposit uh, your cash in, even in the US dollars, I think you can get something like five to 8% return, which is basically riskless because it's also almost insured and so on. And if you go to, to the US, for example, and you want to deposit uh, money uh, to, to a local bank, I, I think like half percent would be a steal. Like, like nobody would give you half percent. Uh, even if you put like a million dollars, and you know, the sort of the economic understanding should be it's it's like an arbitrage, right? Like, you know, banks could borrow from from places where in, the returns are low and invest in, in in high places, but but that's not happening. And so, what, how would you expect? Uh, how would you explain that risk premium? Like in in South Africa, I think I mean I'm quite underwrite in that, but like I think it was also security issues and and some very sort of safe place, I would say. 
but Uzbekistan is quite safe. Like, how would you how would you explain that? So the, the two countries are very different. Yeah. I mean, you're right. The security was a big concern there. The legacy of apartheid is a big issue there. Uh, transportation costs are very high, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, I think Uzbekistan is is a different case. Um, the the uh, environment, the policy environment we see here, is very positive. The, when I compare the growth rates in Uzbekistan and South Africa, uh, Uzbekistan does much better. Uh, there's you know far higher growth rate here than what you had in. South but Africa. lower base though. Lower base though. That's yeah. right. So you know there is a convergence happening uh, in, in that sense. Uh, but you're right. I mean the risk factors are there and policy is changing. And I think the investors though to some extent have a watch and wait approach that they want to see how policy plays out they want to see how uh, you know where where it will stabilize before they make the investment decisions and i think this partially there's also the case with savers when they're looking at uh, saving opportunities in banks uh, they're looking for a longer track record right i mean there is a history of um, mistrust towards the formal financial sector here it will take time um, to overcome that. But, it, it, but if you go to informal sector as well, the, mm -hmm. the rates of return there are also quite enormous. Uh, like a growth of like say 20% a year in, in, a, in a business is, is quite conservative numbers. Uh, if you talk to people, some businesses grow like three digits a year, which is you know quite crazy. But if you look at sort of aggregate numbers, like say FDIs in a year, like let, let's talk about pre-pandemic years. Even in pre-pandemic years, the the maximum FDI that we got in our history basically mm. was comparable to that of Georgia, which is you know ten times mm. smaller mm -hmm. country, which thirty percent of it is occupied by a foreign force. I mean, it's, it's a very very different place. Yeah, and you know the absolute numbers are co sort of incomparable. So I I don't know how to think about this conundrum. Meaning like you know we are basically starving for cash, if, if you will, uh, and you know the market is not supplying it, and I want to know what's your take on this so you know let's break it down right I, the the savings rate in Uzbekistan are 25 percent or 26 percent mm -hmm. the investment rate is about 32 percent so there is a there is a savings investment gap that you need mm -hmm. to fill part of it is getting filled by FDI I think the government is doing a good job in being able to borrow in uh, international debt markets as well um, but I would say 25% savings rate is pretty good. Um, it's a, for a it's poor a, country, yeah. For, yeah. for, for any country. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be able to save this much, you know, I think in 2008 there was a growth commission report and uh, they looked at the example of all the successful countries who had been able to maintain 7% growth over a period of 30 years. And I think they came up with a list of seven countries or something. And one of the characteristics um, they identified for maintaining a strong growth over a long period of time were high savings rate and investment rates. And uh, you know, and the minimum savings rate was 25% to be able to maintain high, high mm -hmm. uh, growth rate. So, so I think Uzbekistan is starting from a good, strong base in having a savings rate of 25%. Maybe it can be increased to 30%, 35%. But you're right. I think it's important to get foreign investment as well, not just for the money, which yeah. is important, to fill the you know the the balance of payment gap, but more I would say for the technological benefits and the managerial benefits and the and the markets it opens up when you get that kind of investment. Now, 
to your question why FDI is relatively low and sluggish, it's pretty normal. I mean, when you look at countries across the world, there's a lag between when you start reforming and when the investment starts reacting to it, right? Investors always will wait a little bit to, see, to make sure that the reforms are going to be consistent and they're going to be stable and they're, they're there to stay and it's not going to change. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think there is still, there is a good response that we see in some sectors in Uzbekistan, in agro-processing uh, for sure, right, where investors are starting to come in. And that's the way to build the success for future by doing well in the sectors where investment is coming in. You show a good track record, you show good returns for those investors, you show good, good outcomes. Outcomes are very important. You show job creation, exports, and all that, which will then create a positive dynamic for more investment to come in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of share your optimism about, about uh, the country, but I also want to um, hear your take on, how can I say, the price of capital, if you will, right? Like the, typically when we think about you know, returns on investment, that's, that's the price of money, right? Mm -hmm. like, and, and I think if you put like the supply and demand hat on, on here, uh, the high price of capital that we, we see here, I think has to do with, with not sufficient supply of, of the capital. And uh, you know, it's, it's so extreme that if, if you are an agro-processing firm which works in Uzbekistan, versus if you are the same firm that mm. does exactly the same thing and you go 10 kilometers from Tashkent, which, is, which becomes Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. uh, the rate of um, you know, price of capital is dramatically different. Yeah. And it's only like, you, you can see like a one firm from another firm, it's like not too far, like you, you can go to a border yeah. and it, yeah. it's very, almost the same type of people live in both sides of the border. I mean, they all, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, look same, the climate is, uh, there, there aren't too many sort of variables except the, yeah. there's like a, a social construct called border. <laughs> And 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 that, that that's the thing I think mm -hmm. quite a lot about. Like, is, is the convergence not happening even within sort of a region? How how would you think about that? I think that's a that's a very good observation. So I would say two things, right? One, I think the cost of capital is high because inflation is high, much higher in Uzbekistan. But in dollars, though, like if, if you take away the inflation part and and some. So let me ask you this: yeah. What is the dollar uh, borrowing rate or lending rate in Uzbekistan? Would you know? So uh, f uh, I I think it's above like seven percent. Okay. So okay. it's 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 ten. I mean, depends depends on yeah. depends on how do you borrow. Like if you, if you borrow informally, right, right. Uh, it's it's uh, like twelve to eighteen percent, right? If you, if you borrow so if from the it, bank, if it's, it's low. through formal sectors, it's seven percent. I would say it's not very high. I mean, yeah. you know, typically if you get get if a company can get yeah. three four five percent borrowing uh, cost, that's really good, right? Yeah. So so you know, yes, it can be lowered, but but I think I, I wouldn't. Uh, panic based on those numbers. Right. Um, but it's like fully collateralized. You know, the, the way to get borrowing in dollars, mm. for example. Right now, I think the, the government want, doesn't want us to borrow in, in dollars for right. the uh, you know uh, foreign exchange risks and stuff like that. They they are thinking about you know if if the firm doesn't have revenues mm. in dollars, they don't want them uh, having a forex exposure. Right? Right. I mean, I think it's a, it's kind of a smart thing. Right. Uh, think uh, to do, but I mean uh, if. I mean, having said that, you know, borrowing from Uzbek Bank is, is almost, again, it, it sounds like quite riskless, meaning, mm -hmm. you know, you have to uh, collateralize quite a bit and it's, it's almost guaranteed that they will get their yeah. 
the returns back. It's, it's yeah. So I think uh, I see a couple of things, right? I mean, when I mentioned that the savings rate is 26% and the investment rate is 32%, not all the savings rate is being intermediated into, into the investment the yeah. because the financial intermediation right now is still weak. The banking sector is still dominated by, you know, the state-owned banks, the private sector banks, and their risk methodologies are still being, still being developed. And, uh, you know, you're comparing with Kazakhstan, which has a more mature system, which has been in place for a longer time, where banking relationships have been in place for a longer mm -hmm. time. And as you know very well, these interest rates and these borrowing costs go down as you have a record of relationship between banks and companies, right? And I think once yeah. I've got, the other aspect of it is obviously competition in the banking yeah. sector, right? If you have a semi-monopolistic olig oligopolist system, they will go for captured markets where the returns are safe, they will not go for more risky yeah. investment. So more competition, more private banks coming in, they will be much more entrepreneurial. More yeah, um, I see. So let's talk about trade. That's one of the things yeah. that you are interested in. and I write quite a bit of op-eds and stuff mm -hmm. about trade. And why I do that, it's not because I like um, think about the trade all the time, it's I was almost forced to think right, about right. it because Uzbekistan is, um, is a double landlocked country uh, in which all of our neighbors are also landlocked country, which is quite unique in the world. It's probably mm -hmm. the only place except probably Liechtenstein, I think, but, but it's in the European Union, so they don't have borders, right? Um, which means the transport costs are high. Mm -hmm. On top of that, we have these bureaucratic costs, uh, which are quite high. There used to be some ratings that sort of rank that bureaucratic costs. Uh, on top of that, we have very high uh, tariffs um, comparable to our neighbors. I mean, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Uh, and on you know, on top of that, we're not part of the WTO, and we're not part of uh, many um, other sort of treaties and, and trade uh, agreements, which makes our country almost like a textbook autarky example in the modern world. I mean, modern world is different from the world of 100 years ago before the, before the trade and stuff. And, and it's quite autarkic. But although we are so sort of far away from this uh, free trade equilibria, people, um, both in the government and also sort of in the public sphere, are very much against sort of opening up the trade. And so my question is, um, yeah, let's talk about each of those things, like yeah. Bureau yeah. bureaucracy, transport costs, and tariffs uh, se separately, and how they affect growth. And then we'll go to the political economy of it. Yeah, how do you think about you know, trade? So I would characterize it a little bit differently than what you have, right? Okay. I think there is still some ways to go, but I would also recognize the very strong progress that's been made since 2017. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it. Uzbekistan used to be an autarkic economy. <laughs> it's no longer, right? <laughs> At that point, the average tariff rate was 15%. Oh. Today, it's actually fallen by half, right? Yeah. So it's 7.5%. Um, the country has submitted an application to, for WTO accession, which I think is a very significant move because it ties in uh, Uzbekistan to a very uh, important process of committing itself to trade openness, right? But I think you touched upon a really important topic. Uh, trade openness is extremely important for any country, but a country like Uzbekistan, which is, which is small. 30 million yeah. people, 60 billion uh, GDP. Uh, you know, especially when you measure it against the growth objectives of the country. When you want to grow at 10% a year, which is the you know the objective that you you see in Uzbekistan, then. Uh, 
export orientation, trade orientation is a necessary condition for that. Uh, when you look at the countries which have been able to grow at that at that rate, uh, whether you look at Korea, even China, which is Vietnam, <laughs> right, or even China, which is actually a really large uh, country and large market, oh. have relied on export markets, and that's going to be very important for Uzbekistan. No, you're right. I mean, I think there's. The, the hurdle of double and lockness, which has to be overcome, but it's not in, insurmountable. If you look at some of the horticulture exports that uh, Uzbekistan has been making all the way to Germany, South, South Korea or <laughs> Germany, uh, it's not insurmountable, right? Uh, transport cost is, I would say, 5% of, of total cost. So it's, it's something where it puts you at a disadvantage, but you can make it up by being more competitive in other ways. Look, uh, but you know, if, if you go out and say to people that exports are good, like just like a, as a general euphemism, I wouldn't say you find a lot of people who disagree with that. Although uh, government does have have been and then still d does um, limit exports in some things. They think that uh, if we let the agricultural, some of the ag agriculture to be exported, the prices in the local markets will rise and mm -hmm. it will make people unhappy and so on. So they occasionally sort of close borders. But overall, since 2017, as, as you sort of uh, mm -hmm. noted, uh, this isn't happening up, like as it used to, right? But one thing I'm quite worried about is that although people think exports are good, they think imports are bad. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, uh, how, 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 would you, how would you think about sort of persuading people that you know, imports and exports are almost, almost exactly the same thing, there's some symmetries between them, and, and you can't really mm. grow exports with, with like limiting imports. It's, right, it's like right. mathematically impossible. So, like, I have trouble communicating that. Like, how, yeah. how what's your take? How, how would your take be on that? I would say exactly what you said: <laughs> <laughs> that you cannot have exports without imports. Uh, that you know, just to to be able to export, you need uh, intermediate goods and and raw material that you have to import, yeah. and that's part of the whole global value chain. And you have to be part of the global value chain. In fact. One of the benefits of exports is that it gives you the foreign exchange to be able to import. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a purpose, I think. I mean, one the of the goal, key, one of the, the main purposes, is to get money. It, it, it also makes your, you know, it also makes your companies uh, more competitive because they have to compete outside, and they, yeah. it, it, it sharpens their their competitive edge. Um, but as Uzbekistan develops, there is going to be a need for a lot of capital goods, a lot of capital investment. And a lot of those capital goods have to be imported, right? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, every successful country in the world has done it. Um, so why not Uzbekistan? If it gives you high growth and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and jobs, right? Which is the objective of the country. Yeah, so that, that's, that's something I, I, I think about uh, quite a bit. And, and one conclusion that I sort of came across was that if you open up the trade, uh, there will be winners and losers, obviously, and then That's those right. who lose uh, are much more concentrated than those who win, right? Like, if uh, you know tomorrow the government lifts a ban on—I'm uh, calling it a ban, but it's actually a tax, mm -hmm. right? So one one thing about you just mentioned earlier about the you know, seven and a half percent average tariff. Mm -hmm. This is sort of something that we observe ex post, mm -hmm. not ex ante, meaning some things have such a high tariffs mm -hmm. that are not calculated in the average one because you know yeah. the, the average weighted one is like once it makes sense to bring like some goods uh, mm -hmm. it was ridiculous like some ice creams were like 300% tax it's rate a lot of water in tariff 
Ah, there's yeah. a lot of water in tariffs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that that sort of tariffs. Uh, I mean, how can I say? It, it basically prevents imports, which makes the the average tariff look meager. And I think, uh, I don't know, a good way actually of measuring tariff because if you measure it by you know number of goods and then tariff rate, the average is uninformative. If you do the weighting by exposed imports, mm. it is also quite uninformative because. Mm. <laughs> sort of endogenous to what people are importing. I mean, if, if you put them, you know, too high, nobody's going to import it, and so that mm -hmm. thing is not captured in the mm -hmm. in the average weighted one. I, I don't know how to think about it uh, properly, but uh, again, the the political economy of it worries me, and I want to hear your take on how we should think about it. Like, because people don't really care. I think if if you know, sugar will become know, one cent cheaper, but people who are making money on the sugar tariffs care a lot about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know how to, how to think about it. It's a tough question, right? I mean, this is, a, this is a question that even in the U.S., the U.S. is struggling with, that a lot of um, industries have suffered because of trade liberalization, because it's good for the country, but it's bad for some groups. And how do you handle it? And I, I think the economics profession has been behind on this uh, so far. Uh, you always hear in the economics profession, yes, uh, you have to take care of the losers, you have to have transfer Redistribution systems. Redistribution you know, or something, yeah. But in practice, you don't see that happening. So I would say that having a system of social protection which actually addresses the losers from reforms is very important, right? And that has to be one of the preconditions for uh, making the reform happen and being recognizing that that's, that's an issue. Uh, part of this uh, support for the losers in the reform has to be also to retrain them for um, moving jobs. to uh, you know, the opportunities that are going to open up. Um, so it has to be thought about uh, comprehensively. Um, but it's a tricky issue. I, I agree with that. Because as you said, the political economy is very challenging as well. Because the losers are concentrated uh, because they have a lot to lose per person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the losers uh, and the winners are diffuse. Yeah. So yeah. their incentive to come together is much less than the winners' Correct. incentive to come together. Uh, you know, this, these things have to be have to be carefully managed. So, don't you know? It's difficult to do anything uh, very suddenly. Now, this is where the Vietnam experience, by the way, comes becomes relevant. Where every reform including uh, trade liberalization, but privatization, everything, had a lot of consensus building in the system where everybody's views were taken into account and the speed of the reforms was conditioned by consensus building. So there's nothing wrong in con building consensus and making sure that you have enough consensus, enough people behind the reform to build momentum and to make it stay so that you, know, you don't have to reverse reforms later on. How, how do they build consensus? Like, uh, was it they liberalize their political sphere? How, how do they do it? So they have a very, com you know, they have a complicated system. It's, it's a communist country, yeah. but the, the Communist Party itself has a very diffuse power. There's, it's a very decentralized uh, Communist Party where local uh, branches of the Communist Party also have a lot of um, sway. So uh, across the Communist Party system, uh, 
building consensus. It's not, it's not something that one person decides. It's, it's, a, it's something that the, the party itself decides. Mm. And building consensus within the party is a very elaborate process, very elaborate process, because people come with their own views, and those views are you know, aired within the system. And, uh, and only when the consensus is built across the whole system do they go forward with, you know, with the reforms. Yeah, you, you foreshadowed one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. It's again about sort of hard reforms, the reforms that are necessarily but not popular. And one of it was um, a lot of things in Uzbekistan was underpriced. Mm -hmm. And I personally uh, took it as my sort of a duty to write about it uh, in the public sphere. And part, uh, for example, I, I wrote about that the price of gasoline is mm -hmm. underpriced and it, we used to have lines. Mm -hmm. And they sort of liberalized it and a lot of people understand by liberalization, mm -hmm things will be more expensive. Mm -hmm. Reforms means things will gonna get expensive. Right. And one thing that is uh, very important right now is uh, price of uh, energy. Mm -hmm. So electricity, you know, uh, and other sort of um, water even, uh, mm -hmm. utilities, mm -hmm. uh, gas and so on, mm -hmm. they're all underpriced. Mm -hmm. and, and we as a society spend exorbitant amount of money subsidizing mm -hmm. our energy. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, quite bad because I mean it's, it's quite regressive right mm -hmm. I mean people mm -hmm. who consume right. more tend to be richer but when you talk about it mm -hmm. you sound like a ridiculous person who says mm -hmm. like people should suffer meaning like mm -hmm. I mean if you go out and say you know our electricity is underpriced people will like jump on you saying like how can you say so our our incomes are so low but what I really meant is for example that we spent more on electricity subsidies mm. than we spent on education or, right. or, or other things. And, and so, but like, it's so politically unpopular that nobody wants to, to, to deal with it mm. and it sort of gets exacerbated. Mm. So how would you think about, you know, talking, those, talking about those things without bearing the political cost? Do you think like we should you know, compensate them with cash? Uh, like how, how would you, how would you, think about it or design those policies that are necessary, in my opinion, to, to move country forward, but politically costly. Yeah. So again, um, it's a com complicated, complex uh, policy matter. But I think you're absolutely right that a lot of the subsidy actually goes to uh, people who don't need the subsidy, yeah. who are, you know, well off. And continuing that subsidy is regressive, so it doesn't make any sense to to do that, right? Now, how do you how do you build a system where you still protect the poor people, for whom it's a big deal to pay more for heating, for yeah. example, right, and energy and all that, and at the same time, uh, not do it for the rich? So typically, I mean, what you know, it, it's very country specific, but typically, what you would see is that you would have to raise energy prices to cost plus, at least recovery of cost. Um, and at the same time, have some form of social protection where well-targeted support for the poor, either through cash transfers or through um, some basic level of tariff where you know people below uh, a certain income level pay lower tariffs and above. Um, pay higher uh, would be the way to go, right? So uh, let me tell you about one experiment which mm. is was quite niche in Uzbekistan, and I think it got, I think it's got called social tariff, by the way, that uh, up to like 150 or 200 kilowatt hours. That's exactly what they did. Right. So uh, yeah, yeah. So 
in right. one of the districts in Tashkent, mm. they price the electricity with a step function in which mm. if you consume less than 300, right. you pay uh, less, and right. if you consume more than 300, mm. you, you pay mm. a lot. And and I think more than 90% of the households in mm. that mm. Um, district consumed less than 300. But if you looked at the uh, so we after 2017 we got 300, 300 is high it's very high <laughs> so it's, it's, it's extremely high yeah, exactly because yeah. you know one thing I, I thought at that time especially at that time uh, with uh, with the price of gasoline and the price of electricity was that most of the country was experiencing severe shortages mm. of both electricity and right. and the gasoline like people used to have a diesel generators to just uh, put electricity into their homes right. they had electricity for a couple of hours but having said that the price of non-existent electricity was going up and right, then people right. are furious about it. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and I was like, there should be a way mm. of doing it because, you know, it, it can't be sustainable when you spend right. so much of the public funds on on such an extreme regressive measures like... Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But again, I will go back and say that if the only thing you're doing is making people pay more, that's not going to work. Yeah, right. Yeah. But if at the same time, if you're also working on the supply side, bringing in more competition, you know, and making the the supply side more efficient and uh, better, uh, I think you're going to help the reform process that way. So let's um, you know shift our gears a little bit and talk about size and the scope of the government. Mm -hmm. So one thing I always sort of want to emphasize is, in both in stocks and flows, the mm -hmm. share of the government is really high, mm -hmm. and I'm worried more about uh, stocks than flows. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I mean, you know, flows are also problematic. But you know, st stocks are where where I think uh, the main uh, problem is. So, how should we think about privatization? Mm -hmm. What do you think are mm -hmm. potential you know challenges that may arise with uh, privatization? And how should we make it sort of inclusive in a way that a lot of people will will buy in, if you will? Like you know, we just talk about commodity prices. Like a lot of people are not buying into that reforms. Mm -hmm. uh, how to make people sort of buy into privatization? So you're right. I think the the presence of the state is pretty large here. When you, when you look at the size of the budget, you know, implicitly or explicitly, the government spends about 35% of GDP, which for this income level is quite high. And then when you include the role of the SOEs, you know, 50% of GDP is accounted by 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 the state, uh, and almost 20% of employment is right, which is large. That's a starting point, and you want to start moving away from it because you want to start redefining the, the role of the state. And um, the role of the state is going to remain important, by the way. So, you know, I, I disagree with people who say less government and more private sector. I would say there's a very important role for the private sector, and there's a very important role for the, for the government, and it's a question of defining it. Now, in as, insofar as the privatization is concerned, it has to be done right. I think there are a lot of examples in the world where this process was rushed and the outcomes were not good because the market institutions were not in place and you privatized and what you got in the end was a lot of was basically private oligarchic structures which is not what you want right you want to you want to make sure that you get a competitive outcome in the end and you also want to make sure that you do it in a way that you get good outcomes. The one outcome that you need in Uzbekistan today, and privatization, private participation, is going to be very important for that, is jobs, right? Uh, unemployment in Uzbekistan is very high. It's in double digits. And, and you want to make sure that um, 
you know, privatization is an important instrument for, for job creation. Let me give you one more example from Vietnam, right? Um, now, Vietnam, you know, still has a lot of state-owned state enterprises, but they've been privatizing for the last 15, 20 years. But one strange uh, phenomenon we, we found in Vietnam was that the average productivity of the private sector was lower than the average productivity of the public sector. So it's not good enough to go from public to private when your private is not performing, right? Uh, and that's because they were, they were not doing as well in, in building the market institution to support the private sector. And, and I think that's something to watch out here, that you want to privatize but to a, to a private sector which is a strong performer, is a stronger performer than the public sector. It creates jobs, it creates employment, it creates ex, you know, export as well. So, you know, I think the government is discussing these things. The, there's a, you know, there are laws being framed along these lines. Uh, it is an incremental approach. I think it's been four years. The privatization can, you know, we, need, we would like to see a little bit more push on that. But I, I wouldn't rush the process either. It'll be a great thing to start with the smaller companies to privatize little, you know, two people shops that uh, there's no reason for the government to be running. Uh, garages, for example, right? So, yeah, I mean, start with that. The bookstore is government owned, by the way. <laughs> so that's that's another example, right? So we have 2,800 SOEs, I think, right now. I mean, a lot of them are going to be small mom and pop kind of SOEs. Uh, privatize them, but the bigger ones, I think, you need to be more del deliberate that you're attracting the right kind of private investment. Uh, as a, as a but even in privatization, there is a political economy lens because, although it's not like an oligarchy right now. People who, who sort of operate and work in SOEs, they get um, uh, skewed benefits, if you will, uh, that are much higher and they want to preserve the status quo. I mean, I'm talking about um, things like transportation, for example. Like if, if you fly to Uzbekistan from anywhere in the world, you know it's very expensive. I mean, it's, it's much more expensive than anywhere in the region as well. Yeah. Although it's, it's quite a large country, it's quite a large market in terms of like just airlines. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the railroads and, 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 and so on and so forth. And, and you see that people who sort of work for those mm. state-owned enterprises, their justification comes like, oh, we have so much employment, so we want to, you know, keep, you know, the, the airlines working. That's why we'll force our competitors, even the foreign firms, mm. to keep the prices high so that we're not out of business. Mm. And, uh, and I think the, like, if there is a political will to privatize, and then I think if we're slow, then the concentrated losers, mm. the potential losers, mm. have will have a lot more time and effort to build up the momentum to like stall the reforms. Yeah, and I think I saw this quite a bit of times um, in our recent history. So I, I don't know how to think about you know rapidity. Like sometimes I feel like is is like speed important and, and and the answer is probably kind of coming to yes but i'm i mean you know the jury is still out like i'm i'm, I'm open if you, if you like persuade me that you know we should go slower yeah so speed is important yeah. uh you want to have a momentum in it but you only privatize once you don't privatize exactly 10 yeah, times yeah. So you want to do it right as well yeah. right i mean you you, you don't want to hand it over to you don't want to hand over an airline business to people who don't know how to run airline business. So you don't want to ha handle, you know, hand over yeah. airlines to somebody running a banking sector, for example, yeah. right? So you want to, you do want to make sure that you're, you're, you're doing it right. But again, it goes back to the point we were discussing earlier that the 
the question of winners and losers has to be thought through carefully, right? I mean, um, there will be job losses in sectors when you when you uh, implement reforms. And I think thinking of packages for losers is not a bad idea as long as it it uh, helps you uh, promote the reform. But uh, the larger good has to be kept in mind as well. The case you just mentioned, the consumers in Uzbekistan are paying for uh, rents in one sector, which is preventing job creation in other sectors. Right? So um, it's an important reform. Uh, it has to be done, but it has to be done carefully. Uh, let me talk about uh, one specific thing about the way World Bank operates. And I think, uh, may, again, uh, I want to know like sort of how, how does it work, the inner sort of kitchen of it. And, and uh, you know, we know that you know, developing countries should discover their competitive advantages. And uh, the external parties like the World Bank, they fund sometimes specific projects in specific industries. And don't you think it's kind of preventing the market to do its its magic in a way that people who's, who you know who are in DC or Tashkent office with all due respect or whatever they decide on to sort of where to allocate the the investments and, and not, not not the market how 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 would you think about that I think that's a very good question it's a it's a very fair question so our operating principle now whether or not we implemented uh, you know to per perfection I don't know. Mm -hmm. But our operating principle is that where there's a competitive market, where the private sector can do the job, is not an area where we want to get in. Uh, we only get in where we think there's a market failure, where we think that either the cost of private financing is Too exorbitantly high. Yeah. high or it's not there at all. And through our participation, we actually open you know, the ground for future private investment in, in that sector. Uh, is the way I would see it. Now, the market failure could also be the social returns could be much higher than the private returns. Like education or something, right? Like, like education. Social, social returns are quite that's high. A great, right? That's a great yeah. example, right? Yeah. Where private investment is, uh, you know, often reluctant because the private returns are not, not as high as social high, ones, right? Which no. is where we find, you know, a niche for ourselves because we think the social returns are exceptionally high. I see. So, uh, why I'm asking this question is uh, one of the sectors that uh, employs a lot of people in Uzbekistan, but it's also very unproductive, like, you know, uh, is, is agriculture, mm. right? So, <laughs> the, like, almost half of the population is rural, and a lot of people are supposed to be uh, working in that sector, but uh, it's, it's extremely unproductive, and it's very command economy-ish, right? Like, uh, you know, farmers basically can't, can't decide for themselves what sort of crops they would they would, uh, uh, you know, uh, how can I say? I mean, I, I need to be very careful with sort of with sort of what I say now. Uh, but so, how does the agricultural command economy works here? Is uh, from Tashkent, every region will get orders of specific uh, commodities or goods that to be produced, mm -hmm. and then the local government or local uh, governor's office would uh, give to the local farmers mm -hmm. what they have to produce. And if they don't produce, uh, government has a, a lot of leverage over mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. uh, up to the point, or I think especially to the point, that they would take away their lands. Uh, because there is this rental agreement between the farmer and the government for 50 years, mm -hmm. which government routinely breaks the contracts and saying like, 
oh, we told you you have to you know, get us wheat, but you're you know, planting tomatoes, so good yep. luck with that. And, and we don't, you don't need even a court order, right? Like once the, mm -hmm. uh, you don't even need the prosecutor's order basically for that. So like the way that farmers operate, they're basically like in a, in a communistic state. Mm -hmm. uh, and the World Bank is very involved in agriculture. And so if, if I would criticize the World Bank, people would say like the fact that this, not only World Bank, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, many uh, international financial institutions and even the charity institutions and NGOs and whatever, they're involved in mm. helping with the productivity of the, mm. of the agricultural um, sector by which they exacerbate the process in which the government still keeps it. Like, you know, there's incremental yeah. help they get and they never want to let it go because they get this technical assistance, they get some funding to, to keep the show rolling. So yeah. how would you think about that? So let me preface anything I say by saying I'm not an agricultural specialist. Okay. I mean, you yeah. know more about agriculture than I do. No, no, I, mean, I know but a little bit about Uzbekistan only, not but, like But let me, a couple of things, right? When you said agriculture in Uzbekistan is very unproductive, which may be true. I mean, yeah. it, it needs to be more productive. Yeah. But we are economists, so I'm going to yeah. give you some numbers. Uh, when I look at Vietnam, uh, which is a higher income than Uzbekistan, slightly, yeah. uh, you know, it, so, and has gone through a transition process as well. 40% uh, of the workforce works in agriculture, producing less than 20% of GDP. Yeah. Okay. In Uzbekistan, one quarter of the workforce works in agriculture, producing one quarter of GDP. So it's a more productive scenario here than, than, than in uh, some other countries, yeah. right? Uh, the, the picture you painted shows that there is a long way to go, right? But I wouldn't say that the changes have been incremental. Um, a lot of the changes that have happened in agriculture, and we can talk about what more needs to happen, yeah. but a lot of the changes are not incremental. The role of the government in, um, uh, in deciding what the farmers produce, how much they produce, and what price they sell has been shrinking dramatically. I mean, you, you know that yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. price of wheat the, has the been price, liberalized. Yeah, the, the price is liberalized. Yep. Uh, farm gate sales have been liberalized to the extent I think the next step probably is going to be where all farm gate, uh, at, at the farm gate, the farmers will be free to, to sell to whoever, whoever they want. Yep. Now, one remaining issue is how much land is allocated to wheat and cotton, you know, almost 70% yeah. of if of land is still allocated to wheat and cotton. And I think that remains an issue. It's been decreasing, but, yeah. but obviously that needs to be accelerated, you know, for, so farmers can get more, get more income. So, so uh, when we talk about the scope of the government, what I really, really meant was also like sort of political constraints to the governmental power. So, uh, you know, if, if the government makes a contract with a farmer for the 50 years of usage of the land and so mm -hmm. on, but also, you know, government at, at every level has this leverage on like, oh, we can take away your land yeah. if we wish so. That's a big issue, yeah, I it's, agree. It's not that they, they do it, it's just like the existence of and it. Sometimes they do it too, by the way. I mean, yeah, I mean they right. do it, yeah, yeah, but like what I'm saying is even if they did it occasionally, right. Right. I mean, they do it quite often. What yeah. I'm saying is yeah. it's bad even if they did it quite occasionally because it's just like having a- property rights, um, the security of land uh, ownership or land use is very, very important for farmers to take you know, to be to put the investments, long-term investments that they need to put in to get more productivity. I think it's a critical reform. It's a very critical reform. 
And, uh, and my sense is that the government is actually taking it seriously. So hopefully we'll see results in the coming years. Yeah, uh, so how, how does this relate to the World Bank's business? I know that uh, in some, some industries like livestock mm -hmm. or uh, animal producing and so on, World Bank does investments uh, in Uzbekistan. So do you think it, there was a market failure that World Bank gets involved in this? Like, how does I think this, this, this you, you are now drawing me out into areas which, <laughs> which are beyond oh, my comparative oh, I one. Okay. So okay. I won't be able to get into that level of uh, detail. So how do you think of this? I mean, I, I hear it a lot, and especially in the post-Soviet countries, there is this vilification of the so-called uh, Washington Consensus, which I'm not sure it exists as a... As a, as a as a model, but like almost everybody knows what it generally means, right? Like a freer trade, you know, more property rights and, and there, uh, independent central banking. And there, there's like a laundry list of, of stuff, which in my opinion is is quite sane, right? Like I, I don't feel I, I particularly hate that Washington consensus. But if you read, uh, especially like Russian blogosphere and press, like there's a, a lot of vilification of it. like. How would you think, as a, as a person who works for the World Bank and, and to whom, to, uh, who is sort of represents those Washington consensus in the eyes of, I think, a lot of people in Uzbekistan as well, mm. uh, I think the main argument that people don't like about uh, international financial institutions is that, you know, they help you to reform the economy, but they conflate the economic reforms with liberalization of political sphere. And so do you of really, the political sphere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think they really go hand in hand? And do you think that, say, the bank, the, the, the World Bank, cares about it? Okay, so you've thrown a lot of questions at me there. <laughs> yeah. uh, one is Washington consensus, yeah. and one is uh, political reforms together with economic reforms, which is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So Washington consensus is, uh, is very malign because it's also misunderstood. Yeah. As, you yeah. as you also alluded to, right? Washington consensus means, you know, liberalizing prices, macroeconomic stability, which is not, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but it was never devised as an instrument for all development. It was devised in the context of Latin America, Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s for macroeconomic stability. And, and I would argue that these principles are still important for macroeconomic stability. But I would say these are macroeconomic stability through these principles is a necessary condition for development, but not sufficient, right? And so if all you do is the Washington consensus and stop at that, yeah. then I think you will not get necessarily good results. So, you know, this is one step towards, but there's a lot of supporting institutional reforms that need to go with it. So I think the, the way they vilify Washington consensus yeah. is also like, um, is also political. So like the actual, as you said, the actual Washington consensus is quite malign and it's not, it's not extreme way of saying it. But like the Washington consensus that people define in this part of the world at least is like, oh, this foreign institutions like the UN and so on, they have their agenda of, you know, development and, and helping education and, you know, whatnot. But also they want liberalization of political sphere, which, I mean, again, I don't, agree with it, but I just want to hear your no, I want to clarify that uh, in our charters, 
we don't get into the into the pol political reforms. I mean, yeah. we work with the political systems that are in place. We've been working in China for 40 Forever, years, yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly with the political not. system they have in place. We have been working in Vietnam or India. I mean, they're very different political systems. So there is no precondition in the kind of political system we can work with. We work in all kind of political systems within within the, those systems respecting the, the norms of those systems. Uh, and political reforms is not something that we get into as an institution. We get into economic reforms, we get into development issues, but not political reforms. I see, so uh, World Bank thinks, uh, I mean, if you go to their office or if you go to their website, mm. they talk about eliminating poverty uh, yeah. uh, and thinking about poverty. And uh, how, I mean, uh, have you looked at sort of poverty numbers in Uzbekistan? Do you think like Uzbekistan is, is being challenged by poverty or we're like already sort of graduated from, from that uh, so stage? So Uzbekistan, um, I think confirms the analysis that we see at the global level, which is that the strongest force for poverty reduction is economic growth. Yeah. Economic growth despite the limitations in Uzbekistan has been strong in the last 20 years and and we've seen it in the poverty numbers the poverty rate I don't have the exact numbers with me but it has fallen from high 20s to something like 10 percent right so over the last 20 years so yeah. poverty has been reducing um, now one impediment to poverty reduction even faster poverty yeah. reduction is what I had mentioned before which is the progress on job creation has been very slow and and that has to change I think the job creation part, uh, more employment, better employment, is going to be very important for further gains in poverty reduction. I see. Uh, let's say you have a, you're, you're like, um, how can I say? Let's say you can implement one reform that you think has the highest sort of bank per buck in, in Uzbekistan that you understand so far. Uh, what would you think that would be? Like, let's imagine that there's only like one thing you, you can do. Like, would it be you know liberalizing trade? Would it be liberalizing commodity market prices, energy? Like, how, like what would be your sort of one one policy thing? I think it's a very difficult question because uh, you know often when you look at some economies, you see that there is one distortion, right? Yeah. Everything else is in place, but there's one distortion which is creating low growth or in Uzbekistan, especially in a transition process, I think one reform is not going to do it because there's so many complementarities that have to co you know have to happen on the financial sector because you need credit, you need uh, delicensing, you need uh, you know export reforms because you need markets. So it's very difficult to identify. But if you ask me, yeah. where I would really like to see progress in the yeah. next couple of years, not at the cost of everything else, by the way, because everything else is important too. I would see ag agriculture. I think because that's the core strength of Uzbekistan. And that's where also you've seen really good results in the last three, four years. Uh, incomes have gone up, uh, big impact on poverty reduction, good export response. And I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, that has to continue. And so related to that, land reforms, right? Because you're not gonna get more agricultural productivity until you have reforms on land market liberalization along the lines we discussed earlier. I see. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation. 
I think we're uh, almost at time. Uh, thank you so much uh, you. for being our guest. Uh, it was a very interesting talk, and I think um, uh, there is there is a lot to unpack here. And uh, I'll, I'll look forward to talking to you more and thinking about uh, what you have said. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Bexel. Thank you.